We will be talking a great deal about truth this Sunday, and even in the children's sermon briefly, I want to speak about the truth. Truth in advertising, I guess. Truth in packaging. I wanted to show you a cookie that I bought a while back. I was excited because it was gluten-free. I thought I could eat it. I thought this looks like a great cookie. It's all I need for lunch. And then I brought it home, and I realized it was full of air. And mostly, this was the cookie, not all this. How do you suppose you would feel if you brought a cookie home, or a cake, or anything, and about half of what you paid for wasn't there? How would you feel if you opened a package of a cookie and half of it was already gone? I'll be kind of mad. I'd be kind of mad. You know, that's exactly what I felt too. I thought, I've paid a lot just for air in this package. Absolutely. And it's so, still a cookie. It's still a cookie. That's right. Absolutely. And we had to kind of have to keep our eyes on the prize in that respect. <laughs> it's still a cookie. That's right. But it's not kind of the cookie we were hoping for. So when we talk about truth today, we're talking about being as truthful as we can in all respects, even in the packaging of a cookie, which we're grateful for, but it's not exactly what we expected because this half is just air. So Jesus said, if the son makes you free, and that's he was talking about himself, you'll be free indeed. And in that, he was speaking the truth. So we'll talk more about the truth in, in the sermon today. And we'll talk about how this is Reformation Day, when a new truth dis was discovered, and when it was okay to say, you know, half this package is empty, and we need to do something about telling each other the truth, especially in church. So will you join me in just a brief word of prayer, please? Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Guide us in all that we do during this week. Keep us safe this evening. Make us always mindful of the needs of others and grateful for those who have gone before us, the saints whose day we celebrate tomorrow. All this we ask in the name of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, our Savior, our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks. And you're right, it's still a cookie, even though we're disappointed. So may grace and truth be with us from the one who became flesh and whose glory we have seen, from the one who was and who is, and from the one who came to dwell with us, full of grace and truth. Today's lesson is from the Gospel of John, which typically contrasts markedly, no pun intended, yes, I did intend it to pun, it contrasts a great deal to the lessons from Mark that we have been hearing this last church year. In contrast to the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospel of John has Jesus making multiple trips to Jerusalem. And for this particular trip, it is the festival of Sukkot, or tabernacles, or booths, it's a type of harvest festival. This year, in 2021, Sukkot ran from September 21st to September 27th. 
So it's fall in Jerusalem during this lesson, and things have probably begun to cool down just a little bit. Jesus' brothers have already gone up to the temple in Jerusalem. And by the way, John tells us that Jesus' brothers were not believing in him at this point. So Jesus goes up privately up to the festival because there's already some muttering and controversy about him that has been going on, and he is potentially in danger. However, about the middle of Sukkot, that week of festivals, Jesus goes to the temple, teaches in public, and as part of that teaching, he asks, why do you seek to kill me? Indeed, John says that the chief priests and the Pharisees had sent officers to arrest Jesus. But after hearing Jesus teach, the officers go back to say, no man ever spoke like this. As you can imagine, this is much to the chagrin of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus was not arrested. In fact, verse 30, right before our lesson today, says that many believed in him. Nevertheless, at the end of chapter 8, they're picking up stones to throw at him. But now Jesus says to those who believe in him that they are to continue in his word. That phrase always kind of caught my attention, even when I was a little kid. How do you continue in a word? So if they continue in Jesus' words, these recent believers will become disciples. And the word that is continue in Greek, yes, I looked it up in my lexicon, it can also be translated as, are you ready? To dwell, to lodge, to sojourn, to remain, to rest or settle, to last, to endure, to survive, to be existent, to continue unchanged, to be permanent, to persevere, to be constant, to be steadfast, to abide, to be in close and settled union, to indwell. That's saying a lot, isn't it? So if these new believers continue in his word, Jesus said, the truth will make you free. And they seem to take just a bit of umbrage at this statement of Jesus, responding that they are descendants of Abraham and they've never been in bondage to anyone. Now, in actuality, of course, maybe they're forgetting that little incident of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And in later Mosaic law, there were slaves who apparently were afraid of liberty and shrank from it. Given the opportunity for freedom, they pushed it aside. And with deliberation, they chose a perpetual life of servitude. So that there are passages in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that deal with Hebrew slaves, and even with slaves who do not wish to be free, in which case the master of the house is to take an awl and pierce the ear of the slave to the door. It doesn't say what's supposed to happen after that. It's probably good. But it's interesting, isn't it, when slaves do not wish to be free? And we'll come back to that later. But Jesus reassures his listeners, maybe even confronts his listeners, by saying that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And that word, indeed, it's not the word in Greek that we usually translate as verily, verily, or truly. 
This is the word where we get our English word for ontology, the very study of being. So Jesus is saying, if the Son makes you free, you will be deeply, profoundly free. Now, this is Reformation Sunday, isn't it? And on this day, we celebrate and give thanks for that remarkable part of our origin as Lutherans that led to the uncovering, the rediscovering of truth and grace, which was always there in Christianity, but which became obscured in churchdom, where wealth and power had accomplished much of their corrupting work, as they so often do. In the midst of this complex morass of church, authority, wealth, secular power, the Holy Roman Empire, there's this obscure Augustinian monk teaching in a relatively obscure, relatively new little university in a relatively obscure little Saxon town who requests a public debate on 95 propositions, which he has written in Latin. He had no idea what he was starting. Now, at a time when we are reevaluating much of history, as it has been taught in this country particularly, we must also acknowledge, unfortunately, the darker side of Dr. Martin Luther and his writings. In the midst of all of Luther's incredible gifts, his amazing intellect, his astonishing energy, his prodigious scholarship and written work, which fills shelves and shelves, we must acknowledge the tragic result of his polemic writing against the peasants who had been inspired to fight for their freedom by Luther's own writings, against the peasants, against the Anabaptists, and most particularly against the Jews. These polemic writings are a minuscule part of Luther's enormous written work. Nevertheless, in a book that goes for hundreds of pages with a title that I don't care to speak here, Luther excoriates the Jews of his day who have not seen fit to return to a church that has been cleansed and reformed as Luther thought they would. Some historians have written that Luther's writings about the Jews really weren't anti-Semitic, they were anti-Judaic. Nevertheless, when Luther writes about burning the writings of Jews, and burning their synagogues? It seems a meaningless distinction, doesn't it? And again, without any idea of what he might have been starting, Luther's works, that work in particular, Luther's works were used more than 300 years later by National Socialists in Germany to give impetus to the Holocaust. Lutheran church bodies have made official apologies to the Anabaptists and to the Jewish communities for those polemic, hateful writings. But we really never can apologize enough for what they could have set loose. Nevertheless, and we are people who live in the nevertheless, nevertheless, in Luther's life and in his work, there is a renewal, a rediscovery of grace within the church and the beginning of reformation in church structure which continues even today. This was a rediscovery of truth and grace that we celebrate today. Truth. You will know the truth 
if you continue in my word. We will consider more of what is truth on the last Sunday of the church year on Christ the King Sunday or the reign of Christ Sunday. But for now, we can acknowledge, I believe, that we live in a time when the truth, and that's truth with a capital T, is under assault, spin, ambiguous words, deliberately chosen. The truth is under assault. For just one more homely, inconsequential example, take the eye drops that the doctor told me I should buy for my allergies. He said, now they're expensive. So I went to the drugstore. And of course, there was buy one, get one 50% off. So you can imagine what I did. So here's the box. And here's the bottle. Now, if you're in the back row, you can tell that there's a difference between the packaging and what I get. I wondered why that package rattled. 22 bucks for this. I'm not sure I would have paid 22 bucks for this, but I didn't think anything about paying for that. For another small hometown example, when I was back in Nebraska not long ago, I walked into the grocery store and there was a refrigerator case with bottles and bottles of what commonly is called orange drink, um, notable for the dubious nature of its ingredients. And on top of each bottle, it said, in a little decal, contains 100% orange juice. I thought, wow, really? 100% orange juice. So I lifted up one of the bottles and read the ingredients. Water, high fructose corn syrup, 100% orange juice. So it contained 100% orange juice, but it wasn't 100% orange juice. And I almost had a tantrum there in the grocery store, but people think I'm strange enough back home, so I resolved not to. Contains 100% orange juice. The truth with a capital T is under assault in so many ways. At a time when it's accurate to hear people say that they are speaking their truth. Have you heard that expression? It bothers me, and it doesn't have to bother you, but it bothers me because it's a little bit too individualistic, isn't it? Years ago in communication classes, we would talk about perceptual validity, how people can't help but perceive what they perceive at the time, given their background and their current experiences. Their perceptions are valid. But that's what's being spoken. Honest perceptions, not the truth with a capital T. We live in a time when people can, with a straight face, speak even of alternate facts. What? Alternate facts? A number of years ago, a famous artist said, most people find facts irritating. Facts interfere with their systems of denial. I think he had a point. And now we have sophisticated and artful media who enlarge their influence and their profits by evaluating algorithms and telling us primarily what we prefer to hear from whom we prefer to hear it, burying us more deeply in distortions and delusions if we're not careful. Charles Spurgeon, who was a wonderful Baptist minister and preacher in London, he died in 1892, he said, lies will go halfway around the world while truth is just putting her shoes on. That was 1892. There was an article in Scientific American a couple years ago that 
traced how much more rapidly lies spread. Tweet this. Martin Luther, in his table talks, which was just his informal conversation, said this. He said, there is no wisdom except in truth. Truth is everlasting, but our ideas about truth are changeable. Only a little of the first fruits of wisdom, only a few fragments of the boundless heights and depths and breadths of the truth have I been able to gather, Luther said. Now, that was Luther in an uncharacteristically modest frame of mind around the table. Truth is everlasting, but our ideas about truth are changeable. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from Schopenhauer, and he said all truth proceeds in three stages. First, it is ridiculed, then it is violently opposed, and then it is accepted as self-evident. And we see this progression even in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus begins his ministry healing the paralyzed man who had been carried in by the four guys, you remember that story? Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes who are sitting around question in their hearts, this is blasphemy. It is ridiculed. Then when Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, the Pharisees go out and immediately hold counsel with the Herodians as to how to destroy Jesus. It is violently opposed. But finally, finally, the women stand before the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, and the truth, with a capital T, becomes evident. What are we to do in this time of mass distortion and deception in order to approach the truth that will set us free? First and foremost, we must do, as Jesus said we should do, no surprise. Continue in his word. And we know how complicated that can be. Then, and crucially, we need to realize that we can gather only a few fragments of the heights and depths and breadths of the truth. We keep a perspective on ourselves and on our, our, our opinions and our thinking. Like the bumper sticker said, I saw it. 30 years ago in Grand Junction, Colorado, I've never forgotten it, the bumper sticker said, don't believe everything you think. Sisters and brothers, my siblings, that is profound advice. It must have come from somebody in a 12-step group. That's profound advice. And to seek the truth, we also listen, as the saying goes, with the same intensity with which we desire to be heard. In and through the Holy Spirit, we pursue the search of truth with a capital T, knowing that we may be led to some uncomfortable spaces. As the saying goes, the truth will make you free, but first it may make you miserable. And there's a lot of truth to that. Some of us may not want to be free, like those old Hebrew slaves who had an awl drilled through their ear. If it means giving up our cherished delusions or worst of all, changing our ironclad opinions. When I got together with high school friends, I used to, we used to talk about two or three of my high school friends who I always said they would sooner die than change their behavior. Now we have people who would sooner die than change their opinions. 
This is a day when we celebrate the rediscovery of grace and truth. Most Lutherans, if they've forgotten everything else from their confirmation, remember Luther's emphasis that we are saved by grace through faith. Without our deserving it, and aside from any personal merit, we have been bought out of slavery with a price, not with silver or gold, but with the holy and precious blood in order that we might be Christ's own, live under Christ in the kingdom and serve him with everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Does that sound familiar from confirmation? Some of us had to memorize that. Although the subject is complex, Luther's view of having a gracious, gracious God means that God does not require human beings to fulfill a set of prerequisites in order to receive the gift of Christ or to reciprocate God's giving in order to continue receiving Christ and his benefits. One theologian said, for Luther, to have a God of grace means to believe and trust that through Jesus Christ, God has already fulfilled all prerequisites and fulfilled all reciprocations. In other words, there's no, I'll wash your hands, you wash mine with the Almighty. Furthermore, this grace extends even beyond our thoughts and intellect to include the bodily experience of grace in the sacraments. And ultimately, ultimately, this is a grace that spills out of scripture, out of the churches, into all of God's good creation, and into our relationships with one another, where it's the most challenging. David Rico, who lives and teaches here in the Bay Area, writes, the dictionary introduces us to an element of mystery when it gives the theological meaning of grace as a gratuitous, a gratuitous favor from God or a divinely granted blessing. This form of grace is beyond cause and effect that we cannot generate, but only receive. It is also true that we contain potentials of strength and wisdom within us, but not necessarily the probability that they will activate. And that sounds a lot like the problem of sin, doesn't it? Rico says, grace is what grants us that probability that we can activate the potentials of strength and wisdom within us. By grace, we are given an opportunity we can now understand grace as an unearned benefit from a transcendent source meant for a psychological or spiritual purpose. Our personal destiny, each one of us, is to fulfill ourselves by showing all the love we have, acting wisely, and making the most of our talents. Our collective destiny is to share our gifts for the good of all beings, and to co-create a world of justice, peace, and love. That sounds a little bit like God's reign on earth, doesn't it? As St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short, and all are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May we, as his disciples, continue in his word. And may grace and peace be with us from the one who became flesh, 
and whose glory we have seen, from the one who was and is, from the one who came to dwell with us and within us, full of grace and truth.